Good morning. Today we finished John 8, and I've entitled this sermon at the end of truly a magnificent chapter in the Gospel according to John. I've entitled this last sermon, The Glory of the Great I Am. And I'd like to share something with you as we get started. I have two books I want to show you. I'm not endorsing either of these books, although they're both mine and I love them, but I just want to, I want to draw your attention to something. Uh, I want to compare these two books. They are not in the same genre. They were written for two totally different audiences. They don't have the same purpose. I'm not, I don't want you to compare the content. All I'm going to do is I'm going to read the title to you, and I want you to, don't answer out loud, I just want you to answer inside your head, which one of these would you consider to be more likely to sell more copies to Christians based solely upon the perception of its practicality. In other words, how practical is this for my daily life? Okay? The first one is called Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity. How to be more productive with your day. Second one, For the Glory of God, Recovering a Biblical Theology of Worship. So again, if you were to go into the average Christian home, which would you probably be more likely to find on the bookshelf of the average Christian library? Don't answer, but I think you probably know. As it relates to more practical for my life, well, I hate stress, and I need to be more productive, so this is probably going to end up on your bookshelf more than this will. Here's why I start that way. I want to tell you about the unfiltered reality that I've learned as we have been uh, doing what most churches are doing, which is broadcasting our sermons. These are all live streamed like most churches do these days. And I'm so grateful to be part of a generation where we have uh, technology to be able to do this kind of thing. And with that technology, um, there comes greater responsibility. And also, you get to see statistics of what people are looking at and what they're not. And so at the end of every year... I do what most pastors do. I take a look at what our virtual reach has been. And so at the end of every year, for the last seven or eight years, I look and I see what are people interested in. And I can tell you with almost absolute assurance that a sermon with that title will be at the very, 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 very bottom of our yearly statistics. The very bottom. If I were to name this sermon, 10 Ways to Improve Your Self-Image, 6 Secrets to a Better Marriage, 3 Keys to Killing Bad Habits, look, the facts just don't lie. Those kinds of sermons end up doubling, tripling, quadrupling something with that kind of a title. And so the reason that I can tell you with a relative degree of certainty that this probably won't amount to very much, at least in the virtual world, is because we as a Christian people have come to see the glory of God as having very little measurable practicality as it relates to our daily life when we compare it with things like six ways to stop smoking. Well, that's more practical. I want that, but glory of God, eh. 
I want to share something personal with you before we get to the scriptures. My entire life was radically changed because of a, and I'm choosing this word very carefully, because of an insatiable lust for the glory of God that gripped me about 20 years ago. And when I say radically changed, I mean I changed my profession and I changed my entire life and started heading down the track to become a pastor. And here's why. I had, I grew up in the church, as most of you know. I see some faces I don't know, but most of you I know. Uh, both my grandfathers were pastors. My mom and dad met because they were two pastor's kids and they fell in love. And I, I was the kid crawling underneath the church chairs, biting people's ankles. I grew up in church. And I grew disenchanted, like a lot of people in their teens and 20s do, and in their 30s. I grew disenchanted because the majority of preaching that I heard was no better than the books you can find at Barnes & Noble. They were self-help sermons that did very, very, very little to improve my life. They were six keys to that and seven keys to this and how to have a good marriage and how to keep your sex life interesting. Oh, yeah, I heard all that stuff from the Bible. And it made me want to leave church. Is that really all Christianity is? Just a slightly better self-help version? Like Tony Robbins can give it to me and Jesus is just a little better than Tony Robbins. Like I like Oprah and I like Jesus and they're basically doing the same thing. Is that all Jesus came to give us? Just a little bit, so he came to make my life just a little bit more comfortable while I wait to die? That's Christianity? And so, like most people in their 20s, I was like, forget this. And I started to lose my captivation with life. I started to find life to be rather stupid and not worth living. That is until I started to hear real preaching. It started for me with a man by the name of, anybody want to guess? John Piper. How did you guess? I mention him a lot, for those of you who don't know. It was the first exposure that I had, roughly 20 years ago, to a kind of preaching that offered me something better. And it was John Piper who led me to C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis to Jonathan Edwards, and Edwards to Tozer and Tozer to R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and J.I. Packer and Charles Spurgeon. And from these men, I came to catch a glimpse of something that has captivated my heart. And I'm telling you on the authority of my word, take it for what you will, I have never been able to look away. My entire life was changed when someone showed me something so beautiful that it made everything else in this fleeting little span of life seem worthless by way of comparison. And so I invite you this morning, just dip your toe in the waters of the glory of the great I am with me this morning. Father, I'm asking you to give us a glimpse of something that is unapproachable. We've sung about it so far. But I pray that those words would not just be lip service to you, 
but that you would open the eyes of our heart and show us something more magnificent than we can even contain within our minds so that we will be captivated by your beauty and your glory and awestruck by your Son forever and ever. Amen. We're at the end of John 8. John 8 is the record, the true historical record of Jesus who's been teaching publicly at the Jewish Feast of Booths. And we've been looking at this teaching now for almost two whole chapters Jesus has been here. And now we're at the end of John 8. And he's been teaching, and as he's teaching, he's mocked and he's maligned and he's mistreated by Jewish authorities, as well as some of the common people who just didn't believe in him. He's telling them the truth from God, and they just, they don't want to hear it. Every time you see somebody arguing with Jesus in the Gospels, they realize that they're coming against a mind that is so far beyond a mere human mind that they get frustrated, and here's what they do. They end up just turning to childish methods and calling him names. You know how when you're arguing with somebody who you know they're smarter than you, and you're like, well, well you're just a jerk, because you can't think of anything to beat them in their argument? Kids mainly do that to their parents. Well, okay, I'm a jerk. That's because you know I'm right. That happens every time they argue with Jesus in the Bible. And so now we're going to begin the end, the last 11 verses of John 8. And they're so frustrated because his wisdom is so otherworldly and his glory so beautiful, they don't know what to say, so they start calling him names. And wait till you see his response. John 8, 48 through 59, the last 11 verses of the chapter. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? How childish. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he's the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he's our God. But you've not known him. I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I'd be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Oh, he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. 
But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The end of the argument here, the long argument at the Feast of Booths, here at the end of John 8, comes down to one single theme. Eternal glory. Every time I have preached on the subject of glory, I feel this compulsion to define it because in every church there are people who just, they don't know what that is. They've been singing about it since they were little. Maybe this is the first time you've sung about it. And you're like, I, what, what is that word? So I need to define it so that we're all on the same page. In Hebrew, it's the word kavod, and in Greek, it's doxa. They mean the exact same thing. Here's the definition of the word. Weight. Heaviness. Worth. Value. So let me give you a couple of illustrations where this is used in our modern context. If I were to say the glory of something, like a diamond, we could say its shine, this isn't a diamond ring, but my wife could show you, the shine of this diamond has a greater shine, a greater glory, a greater, greater worth, a greater value than a duller kind of gem. Or if I was to say uh, the value of a human being, God has ascribed a greater weight, glory, value, worth to a human than to the rest of creation. Human beings have a greater value than anything else that was created, a greater glory. Or if I was to talk about my word, let's say that you were to come up to me and show me, hey, Pastor, look, I got this thing, this spot that's growing on my, my skin, and I was to say, you've got to have that looked at. That looks like it could be cancer. Well, you would say, your word has some weight to it, some value, but nowhere near if you were to go to a dermatologist, and a dermatologist was to say, we've got to have this checked. His word or her word, that dermatologist, the glory of that word is greater than mine in that context. That's the right way to think about glory. It's a weightiness, a heaviness, a worth, a value, a shine. The claim that Jesus is making here at the end of John 8 is the most significant claim that has ever been made by any human being in the history of the world. He's claiming, church, listen to me. He's claiming that the heaviest, weightiest value, the thing that is most worthy, more than every life in this room, is him. That he, according to his father, is the greatest worth in all of the heavens. So I've articulated that main idea so that you don't miss this because it is one of the most important messages you will see in your life. This has, take it from me, this has the power to change the total trajectory of your life. Here's the big idea. Look on the screen. The fullness of the weight of the glory of God belongs to Jesus. Now, I'm going to show you why. This is the most practical. If you fall asleep, I'm going to throw something at you. <laughs> this is more practical than six keys to whatever bad habit you could ever imagine to beat. This is more practical than how to save your marriage. This is more practical than anything in your life. And I want to prove it to you. 
as I see it in this text, you, you can split it up into two parts. Jesus talks about the glory of his father, and he talks about the glory of Abraham. And he, he jumps back and forth between the two. So what I want to do is I want to divide the text into two different parts and show you two main points that will prove this big idea to you. Okay, here are the two parts of the, of the sermon today. Yahweh, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the Father of life, all life that exists, he glorifies Jesus. Abraham, the father of faith, he glorifies Jesus. So friends, we're going to split the, the text into two parts, and I want you to ask a question of yourself. And just be honest before God. Here's the question. If God, the one who gave you life, he shines the spotlight and says, this is what life is all about. What in the world could be more important for your life than what God, the Father of all life, says is most important to Him? Isn't that just a duh? There's nothing more practical, and I want to take you through this two steps, okay? Beginning with observation number one. Yahweh, the Father of all life, everything that has life in it, in the whole universe, glorifies Jesus. In other words, said a little differently, here's what I'm going to show you in the text. The goal of God, it's one goal in everything he's doing, everything he ever has done or will ever do. His goal is to make Jesus, his son, the central focus of his own glory. And so should you. Look back at the text, and we're going to chop it up, okay? Beginning in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? That's a dishonored citizen of earth. In their mind, that's the most dishonorable person you could be. So they have a dishonorable citizen of earth, and you have a demon. So they're saying, You are the most dishonorable citizen the earth can house, and you're also the most dishonorable citizen the heaven has ever housed. That's why they kicked those demons out, those fallen angels. You are disgusting. That's what they're saying. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Honor is just a synonym for pointing the due glory to someone who earns it. So, like, Let's say I was to take Dave and Peyton and the worship team and bring them up. And I would say, I heard you all do it. You all did this. Because the Bible says, give honor to whom honor is due. It's a way of shining the spotlight on something that is magnificent to look at, right? Wasn't there playing magnificent this morning, by the way? Yeah. Yet I do not seek my own glory, says Jesus. There is one who seeks it. And he is the judge. And then he continues the same line of thought down in verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he's our God. But you've not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I don't know him, I'd be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Okay, I'm going to teach you a lot. Please restrict your focus for the time being down on verse 50 and 54 because here's the main point. Look at it again. I do not seek my own glory 
there is one who seeks it. So someone is seeking to take the spotlight of the universe and shine it on Jesus. Okay, that's what he's claiming. And he is the judge. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. What that simply means is, with, think of it like a prophet. All the prophets of the Old Testament, if someone comes and says, I speak for God, and they have no backing of Yahweh, God the Father, like a miracle to show God has affirmed that this person has the word and we should listen to him. If I don't have that, then you shouldn't listen to me. That's what he's saying. If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. But it's God who's shown you through all my miracles that he's speaking. Okay? It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he's our God. God, we're in John chapter 8. John chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 have all been about, been about Jesus showing that God is certifying him through miraculous signs. And that's how he got to where he is. That's why they hate him, because they know anybody who does the things that he's done, we have to listen to him. And he threatens their authority. Let me settle a few misapplications of what Jesus is saying here, because I don't know if you know it, but cults use what I just told you. And they say, everything we're doing here today is improper because we're making that the central focus. They say that we should make God the Father the central focus and pretty much forget about Jesus. And they use this, this passage. Let me show you where they're misapplying it, okay? When Jesus says, I do not seek my own glory, what he's not saying is that it is wrong to put him as the central focus. What he is saying is that it is impossible to glorify God the Father and not God the Son, because you cannot separate God the Father from God the Son. That's what he's saying. And I want to prove it to you. May I? I want to fast forward to John 17, which I can't wait till we get to John 17. It's one of my favorite chapters. Jesus is praying right before his crucifixion. And look at what he says to God the Father. Here it is up on the screen. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Say these three words. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. To glorify Jesus the Son is to glorify God the Father. That's all Jesus is saying there. So, the simple point I need to draw your attention to is this. The God, the God who is worthy of all the attention of all of His creation, the God who created... Friends, think of something beautiful. Man, I hope it's your wife. Think of something beautiful. Grand Canyon, a beach, whatever. Who cares? There's a creator who made that. It came out of nothing from his heart and his mind. And God has given 
all of the glory, the attention, all of the splendor, all of the majesty, all of the wonder, and put it in his son so that you will look at him and see something so magnificent, so beautiful, that nothing else you could ever want to fix your gaze on would ever compare. That's what he's saying here. You might ask me now at this point, I imagined somebody might be saying, what makes Jesus so worthy of all this attention? Why is he worth, and I'm going to get practical here with you, why is he worth more than my kids? Why is he worth more than my family? Some of you may have kids, grandkids, who might want to grow up and become missionaries to North Korea or Iran. And they may be executed publicly for just possessing one of these. And you might want to say, no, don't go to them. It's not worth it. And then you might say, oh, it is. Even if you lose your life, it's worth it. Why is Jesus worth more than your kids, more than your spouse, more than your life, even if you're publicly executed, skinned, boiled alive as some of your brothers and sisters were in church history? Why is he worth that? That's a good question. In my life, the reason why I'm such a, a John Piper groupie is because no one's really been able to sum this up for me better than he has. He is able to capture with words, God has gifted this man, he's able to capture with words why Jesus is worthy of all of what I just explained to you. And I have it up on the screen for you. It's from Desiring God, and it says this. I'm going to read it slowly so you can savor this. We must see and feel the incomparable excellency of the Son of God. Now look at this. Incomparable because, here's why he's better than your children. Because in him meet infinite glory and lowest humility. Here's the king and he's here washing feet? Do you know anybody else who does that? Keep reading. Infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. He's the king of glory, and he comes and is lowly. Allow somebody to strip him down to his underwear and hang him on a cross. In him we meet deepest reverence toward God, and at the same time, equality with God. Who does that? If you were equal with God, you know what you'd do? Because of your sinful nature, you'd say, bow to me. He comes and lets us rip his beard out. Continue. Infinite worthiness of good. You're not worthy of anything good. You're not. Neither am I. He's worthy of all the goodness that there is to give. And yet... He has the greatest patience to suffer evil. Supreme dominion. He is an authority of everything that breathes. And yet he's exceedingly obedient. He has divine self-sufficiency. He has no needs. None. And yet he embodies childlike trust. Better than anybody ever has. Father, apart from you, I can do nothing. I trust you like a little child. Friends, when we see any created thing, a created thing, 
doing something worthy of our attention, we as human beings, who, especially Americans who love entertainment, we gawk over a created thing that's done something excellent and worthy of our attention, right? Jesus had at his disposal throughout his, the entirety of his earthly life total omniscience, all knowledge, and total omnipotence, all power, so that at the moment when these Pharisees are questioning him, he could have spoken a word and turned them back into the dust from which they came. He had that at his disposal, and because he loved his Father and loved you, he willingly veiled it. Do you know of anything with that kind of glory? Let me tell you something. Our world right now in 2024 is starving for that kind of glory to get it from somewhere. He has such power that demons say this when he walks on the scene. Leave us alone. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. If you encountered one of these demons, you would fall on your face in such utter terror. And when they encounter him, they fall on their face in such utter terror. This is the one in whom is the possession of all the glory that you could ever imagine. And they recognize it. Do you? According to CBS Sports, 123.4 million people watched the Super Bowl last Sunday. And as it is every single year, that made it the most watched telecast in NFL history. They say that every year. You know that, right? Last year, 2023, it was 114.21 million viewers. This year, 100 and, what did I say? 123.4. You know why we are attached to the screen during the Super Bowl? Even people who don't like football, they watch the Super Bowl. It's because we are glory-starved people. Let me explain what I mean. We watch it because we are attracted to seeing excellence. And we want to watch it in a surround sound TV screen and so that we can be engulfed in it because we don't want to just behold it. We want to become it. And perhaps if he can do that on the screen and make that catch with one hand and then raise that Lombardi trophy over his head, maybe, just maybe, that might also be in me. If it's in him and he's just an image of me, maybe I have that same glory too. I'm telling you, the reason why most of the world tunes in to watch this is because we are so starved for glory. We want to see something of worth and value and say, I have to have that. I want to have it. I don't just want to see it. I want it to become mine. Do you see what makes him so worthy? He gives you God. Not just to see him, but to have him as your own. In another book called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, John Piper writes this. We're all starved for the glory of God, not self. Now look at this next line. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. You know what he means by that? You stand at the Grand Canyon, you're going to feel very big or very small? Very small. You don't go there to feel big about yourself. You go there to behold something that will blow your mind. 
keep reading. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go, he asks. Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. Indeed, what could be more ludicrous in a vast and glorious universe like this than a human being on the speck called earth standing in front of a mirror trying to find significance in his own self-image. By the way, that's the same thing we do in a TV screen. It's a great sadness, Piper writes, that this is the gospel of the modern world. The Christian gospel is about the glory of Christ, not about me. And when it is, in some measure about me, like there are some parts of the Bible where it's focused on me. He says, when it is about me in some measure, it's not about my being made much of by God, but about God mercifully enabling me to enjoy making much of Him forever. Like, there's no reason why any of you should be sitting here enjoying making a big deal out of Jesus when in your fallen nature you are hardwired to make a big deal out of you. The only reason you're enjoying this is because someone has made you born again and you have a new set of affections and you want to see that which is truly glorious put on display. That's why you're enjoying this service right now. At least I hope you are. Friends, here's the application. If Yahweh, the Father of all life, glorifies Jesus as the highest worth, what in the world do you think your life is about? Do you think for one second that it's about this? This is how most Americans go through life. Me, me, get, 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 get. He gave everything away. And God gave him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. So, for an application, there are three little verbs right there in the text that Jesus uses to give us an understanding of how to go through life glorifying the Son of God. Anybody interested? Here are the three verbs that Jesus uses in this text so that you can know, what am I supposed to do with all this information? He says, I honor my father, there's a verb, I know him, and I keep his word elsewhere translated as obey him. Honor him, know him, obey him. If you can do these three things, I'm going to expound upon them for just a moment. If you can do these three things and make this the goal when you wake up in the morning, just want to honor him, know him better, and obey him to the best of my ability. I promise you, until you die, you will shine the spotlight on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me show you how, okay? Honor him first. What I mean by that is, I submit to you a proposition, church. The best way to honor Jesus Christ is to seek him, ask him for things that are just beyond your reach. I'm going to give you an example from modern day life, and then I'm going to give you a Bible verse, okay? The best example that we have of how to honor somebody, oh, you're gonna, I'm going to say something right now that you've probably never heard a preacher say in your whole life. I wish there was a crying baby right now. Because a crying baby would give us the best object lesson for how to honor someone. Here's what I mean. You know why a baby cries? 
Because they, they need something. And there's only one person who can give it to them. And so they're crying out to the one person who can give them what they need. No one puts on display what it looks like to honor another than a brand new infant baby. I need and you can give so I cry so that you'll help me. If you want to honor Jesus, say to him, Lord, there are things that I need. I can't reach. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't have. I don't have. I can't. You can. And because you can, I will cry out to you every day with my needs. And here's why you should. Look what Jesus says in John 14. In a few chapters, we're going to get there. Here's what he says. Whatever you ask in my name, and that means in accordance with my will. He's not a genie in a bottle. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And you say, why, Jesus? And he tells you, so that. Here's the reason why I want you to ask me for things, little babies. Because the Father may be glorified in the Son. When you come to him and say, Abba, Father, I can't. And so I declare in front of everybody, I can't do anything apart from you, and so I need you. Nothing makes him look more worthy and more valuable than you who are so wealthy and don't need anything to say, I can't do anything without you. If you want to live a life that glorifies God, honor him by declaring to him how needy you are of him. Second, know him. This is going to be short and simple. You cannot make much of what you do not know much about. Let me give you a little illustration. Um, okay, my wife's not here, so I'll use her. Um, I have a capacity to glorify, make a big deal out of Ashley in a way that no one else in this room can simply because I've spent more time with her and I know her better than all of you do. That's it. I know little intricate beauties about my wife that if I wanted to, I could share with you and you'd say, I didn't know that about her. Wow, how much more worthy does she look? Okay, I could do that. If you spent more time with Ashley, you'd see the things that I saw and you'd say, I can now make a big deal out of Ashley too because I've seen these beauties that Pastor Luke was telling me about. Same thing is true about Jesus. You cannot make a big deal out of what you know very, 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 very little about. So don't just know him. I know he died on the cross. That's pretty much it. No, know him intimately. Study his words. Meditate on them. Pray to him. Ask, pour your heart out to him in a way that you don't to anyone else. The more you know him, the more the capacity to glorify him will grow. Make sense? Third and finally, the last verb in the text. Obey him. At the very end of his earthly life, in that same prayer in John 17, look what Jesus says about the way that he glorified his Father. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Here's my point. Doing what God commands you to do in your life makes him look valuable to everybody who's looking in on your life to see what you find to be the highest value. If you, the one whom you obey you make to look really, 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 really valuable. Right? If you obey your cravings, you tell the world, I am my master. You obey his commands, you tell the world, he's the most valuable thing to me. It's just that simple. So honor him, know him, and obey him.
Now, you might think, well, that's, that's all we need for this sermon. No, there's one more observation. As if God the Father shining the spotlight on God the Son wasn't enough. I have a really interesting couple of things to show you in this. So stick with me, okay? Observation number two. Abraham, the father of faith, glorifies Jesus. Here's what I'm going to show you. All this is going to get good. The goal of Abraham, the father of, listen to me, right now in 2024, the three most influential faiths on planet Earth. That father of that faith points the spotlight to Jesus. Look back at me, verse 51 through 53 and 56 through 59. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Stop for just a moment. This is not the first time they've heard this. As a matter of fact, Jesus is just doubling down on what I've already taught you and what Jesus has already said to them. Back when he did the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and when he said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats this bread will never die. That's when they first started to hate him. So this is not new. He's just doubling down on what he already told them. But he expands upon it. Notice there he says, anyone. The word literally means anyone from any background. It's not just Jews. It's anyone who puts their faith in me will never die. And so they respond with a question that is the point I'm trying to make. Look at how they respond. Are you greater than? Friends, greater than is a comparison of worth. Like Abraham was so valuable, so weighty. Look what he did in the world. Are you claiming to be of greater value, worth, weight than Abraham? It's a comparison of glories. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus responds to this question down in verse 56 through 59. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Kids, Abraham lived thousands of years before Jesus. And Jesus is saying, yeah, Abraham knew me. And you should go, how in the world does that work? You've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you. Let's read this together. Before Abraham was, I am. We've got to stop. We've got to stop. When Moses encountered God in the burning bush, he said, who shall I tell these people I'm talking to? Who shall I tell these people that sent me? And he revealed his name. And it's an unpronounceable name, but it's most often phonetically pronounced Yahweh or Jehovah. But it's captured in the Hebrew meaning, I am. I am. Tell them I am has sent you. I am who I am. In this name, listen, is encapsulated for a, a Jew the consummate beauty of all the perfections and purity of God. For someone to ascribe to himself the name I am is to ascribe to themselves the 
most sacred label that has ever been given in the history of the universe. And so look how they respond. Of course, this is the way they respond. They picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple. Please restrict your attention now to verse 56. Okay? Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He did see it, and it made him glad. Here's what this means. Although Abraham lived centuries before, Abraham was made promises by God. And the major promise that he was made is that he would be the father of as many descendants as you could possibly imagine, more than the stars, more than the sand on the shore. But it was this one part of the promise that Abraham fixed his gaze upon. It was not necessarily the promise of children. It was who would come as a result of all these children. A promised seed. Someone who would fix all the problems in the universe. Someone who was promised to Eve. A seed that would crush the head of the serpent. That promised seed was the one that Abraham looked at and said, He's coming. And I believe. And so he went out, not knowing where he was going. Remember that from last week? Because he believed God is going to bring a promised one. A promised one. And so Jesus is saying, that promised one that Abraham looked at and built his entire life around and shined the spotlight on, I am the embodiment of that one. I am the God of Abraham. So you might say, okay, Pastor Luke, that's fantastic, but how in the world is the fact that Abraham, a man who lived thousands of years ago, how is it that his focus on Jesus is in any way practical for my life? Oh, man, i got to show you this. I've been excited all week about this, so don't lose me yet, okay? I'd like to make a broad statement here, okay? Apart from Jesus... Abraham is the most influential person that has ever walked the face of the earth. What I mean is, no one in history, now think Einstein, think all these people, no one has a greater glory, a greater worth, a greater value than Abraham. Okay? A few years back, a Time magazine came out with a magazine cover that looked like this. The 100 most influential people of all time. And of course, they do this from time to time. Jesus is always number one. Even secular people recognize when, when you change a calendar, clearly your influence is great. No one denies that Jesus of Nazareth was the most influential person of all time. But I was surprised to see that Abraham didn't even make the list. I wanted to throw that magazine in the fireplace. Can I show you why? It's indisputable. Abraham is number two. No question. I want to show you a breakdown of the global religious landscape right now in 2024. Here's what our world looks like. Here's a chart. Christianity makes up 32% of the world's population. That's 2.3 billion people who profess to be Christians. Next to that is Islam. Approximately 1.9 billion adherents to Islam. That's 23% of our world's population today. Hinduism. 1.2 1.2 billion adherents, 15%. Buddhism, 500 million, 7%. Uh, various folk religions, and there are, there's a, a number of them. About 400 million people in the world. That's 6% of the population. Judaism, Jews, 14 million, that's 
2% of the population. And other religions, you probably can't even see those little slivers up there. Other religions, 58 million, that's less than 1% of the world's population. So that's the breakdown as of right now on planet Earth. Here's my point in showing you that. Three of the world's most influential faiths all trace their faith. They pull the thread all the way back to one man, Abraham. In 2024, thousands and thousands of years after this man lived, he's still on your news channel tonight. How many of you have heard of the Abraham Accords? 2020? If you go home, turn on any news channel, CNN, Fox News, pick your favorite, go home, turn it on, I guarantee you, tonight, the conflict in Israel will be on your TV screen. And do you know where that all comes back to? Abraham. Abraham. It all comes back to the land promised to Abraham. All of it. Who in the world has a greater glory, a greater worth, a greater influence than that man? Amen? And he says, look at Jesus. He says, yes, I changed the entire planet Earth all the way up to 2024, and my entire life was about Jesus. And for some reason, we, can, we struggle to get Christians to make their lives about Jesus. Is your life about the same object of the faith as Abraham? Final application. Abraham looked forward to the day of Jesus and he saw it and his life was filled with joy and gladness. So here's an application for you. Dream daily about the day of the Lord. If Abraham looked forward to the day of the Lord and built his entire life on that hope, you too should look forward to the other side of the cross when he comes again and build your entire life on that day. That's what the apostles did. They all wrote about it. Let me show you my favorite as we close here. It's Peter. Peter said, these trials have come, the trials of the entire Christian life, they've come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth, a heaviness, a weightiness, than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in something. What, Peter? What's it going to result in? In praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed, therefore, Peter says, with minds that are alert and fully sober, do what Abraham did. I'm inserting that here. Set your hope, fix your gaze on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. The single greatest way to glorify Jesus is to dream daily like a bride waiting for her groom to come. God, the Father of all life, glorified Jesus. Abraham, the Father of all faith, glorified Jesus. And your life has been given to you to glorify Jesus. Friends, I'm all finished, and I sat up in my office this week on Tuesday when I was making my outline, and I thought, uh, with tears streaming down my face when I was just enraptured thinking about Jesus. And I thought, there's one song that I would really love to hear at the end of a sermon like this. And I asked my daughter if she would play it because she plays it in January and I was in Los Angeles when she played it and I missed it. And it's a song that most English-speaking 
countries around the world sing on New Year's Eve, Old Lang Syne, uh, except that it was redone by King's Kaleidoscope. And they re-entitled it, All Glory Be to Christ. Man, I read through these lyrics like 15 times this week, expecting that this wouldn't happen, and it's starting already. I want to read you the lyrics before she comes up, so that you'll have a moment or two to meditate on them before she sings them, okay? Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive. Unless the Lord does raise the house, in vain its builders strive. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me, what is your life? A mist. It vanishes at dawn. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. His will be done. His kingdom come. On earth as is above. Who is Himself our daily bread. Praise Him, the Lord of love. Let living waters satisfy the thirsty without price. Come eat of Him, our living bread. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. When on that day, the great I Am the faithful and the true. The Lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light. And we shall e'er His people be. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. Father, let that be the anthem of your people here in Beach Haven. I ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.